Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. This week on the podcast, I'm joined by singer-songwriter Steve Brooks, the man who co-created the jam with Paul Weller back in the early 70s. We'll hear about those early days as a duo before meeting Rick and then Bruce, writing songs, recording demos, gigging around Surrey, and why he left the band in September 1975. We'll chat about his friendship with Paul and playing live together and on each other's albums in recent years. Plus news of Steve's new album, Tread Gently, which is released this Friday, September 3rd, which again features Paul Weller and his bandmate Ben Gordelia. We'll talk 22 Dreams, Wake Up the Nation, Saturn's Pattern, Jawbone, True Meanings, On Sunset, and Fat Pop Volume 1. So let's get into it. Steve Brooks, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. I love the fact that we're clearly in the guitar room here. So how, how many guitars have we got in this room and which one's your favourite? Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> I think there's uh, one, two, eight, but it's about nine in here, I think. Just, so. just, just nine. They all do different jobs, you know. And yeah. which one are you feeling today? Which one's your favourite right now? I've just put some jazz tape-wound strings on an old crafter guitar, the cutaway one up there. That's quite interesting to play. I'm sort of uh, working on a few sort of new little moves with that. So a lot of the time, it's not necessarily about the guitar. It's how you set them up and what you put on them. I experiment quite a lot with different strings and that. So from heavy strings to light strings silk and steel strings you know and these are um, all acoustic or semi-acoustic there aren't they so, yeah i've yeah. got an electric um little yamaha electric but i don't really play a lot of electric these days so and how would these differ to that first guitar that you got back in i'm guessing 1971 72 something like that right yeah it was christmas 71 yeah i mean you know it was it was an acoustic guitar my dad bought it for me from the music shop you know and it wasn't the worst of the worst you know it was a thing to get going on, you know. It's the old problem, you know, that all musicians have. As soon as you've got something, you want something else, you know. It's like, there's a joke amongst guitar players. How many guitars does a guitar player need? And the equation is N plus one. N is, is the amount of guitars he's already got, you know. <laughs> uh, I, wanted, I wanted to go from the acoustic to electric, you know, so that was a, another move, you know. And the trouble is when you're like that age, when you're 14 or whatever, you, I think, a new cheap sort of copy then was probably 25 quid, but 25 quid was, it could be like 25 grand, you know. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to talking with you, not least because we're on the eve of, of a new Steve Brooks album, which is always an exciting thing. And as this is a Paul Weller fan podcast, there's some connections with Paul, not just in Paul playing, but with Ben once again, being part of the crew, Ben Gordelia. So we'll talk about that in a sec, but I want to kick off with, talk, with talking about when you first got to know Paul, when you first met Paul Weller. Can you remember when it was? Well, yeah, it was November 1971 when I first attended Shearwater School. We got to know each other sort of thing. I got the guitar for Christmas and then obviously once the new year got underway, we both realised that that was a bit of common ground. 
And we started kicking around and realised that we both wanted to do the same thing, you know. And I'd show him little things that I'd learned and he'd show me little things he'd learned. And then all of a sudden we just bonded and that was it, you know. We were just, we were away, you know. I think his dad got us our first gig about six months later, you know, after we'd just started playing, you know, so... Wow. And what are you yeah. this age? You're, you're what, 13, 14? Well, yeah, that would have been 13, beginning of 72. We were both 13 because yes. he's a day older than me. His birthday's May the 25th, mine's May the 26th. So I get to pull his leg about being a bit younger than him. You know? <laughs> the old fella, the old fella. Um, the old fella. And I remember watching the Into Tomorrow documentary where, and I think actually it was mentioned on the Jam documentary recently as well, where basically what it was you had was the Beatles complete book and you were kind of learning that back to front. But Nikki Weller told us on the podcast that you had a couple of lessons, the two of you, but then we're like, yeah, we know it all now. We're all right. We don't need any more. Was that right? No, I don't think it was so much that. It was just that the guy that was teaching us was a guy that worked in Maxwell's music shop, Ricky Smith, his name was. And he used to play in a lot of dance bands and he was like, he was a proper reading guitar player you know and he was trying to teach us to read music and we weren't really that it was more you know it wasn't really what we wanted that we were bothered about you know mm. it did give us a few pointers you know and just this whole sort of idea of one of you playing the rhythm and the other one playing a lead bit you know so that sort of got us going and then the big problem with it is when you when people say to you oh, i want to learn the guitar or what sort of guitar should i buy you know if i want to learn and the most important thing is how much you want to do it. It doesn't really, at that stage of the game, you need something that's playable, but it's not about having a fancy schmancy guitar. It's about having the will to sit down and practice, you know. That is a lot of people just like the idea of sort of sitting there with their guitar in front of the girls, which everyone likes, but you've got to put some elbow grease into it, you know, to get the girls wanting to listen to you. you know? <laughs> yeah, otherwise you're just an idiot carrying around a guitar that you can't play. Yeah, you're just a guitar <laughs> owner then rather than a guitar player, so... <laughs> That's incredible. That's what's the six months later you're you're getting a gig. And was that Paul and you as a duo? Was that the jam? Yeah, was yeah. That... We started off as a duo. Did it have a name? No, not really. Um I think the jam came up fairly soon after we sort of got playing. The first lineup we had, we had another guy, because Paul all origi- originally wanted to play bass. We had another guy that was playing rhythm guitar called Dave Waller, who sadly died very young. And um, you know, a couple of other drummers before Paul Butler came along or Rick Butler came along. But he was the one that we sort of gelled with and then we it became a bit of a three-piece and that was when the jam name came up, you know. We never went out as anything other than the jam. That was right. it. It was no, there was no name before that. And before this chat, I um, I reached out on Twitter to see what uh, if the fans had any questions and there were loads, like loads, so many people were like, oh, you got to ask him this and ask him this. And, that. and one of the questions was from Joe Nellis asking, what, you know, if you can remember those early days in that Beatles song book, what was your favourite song that you and Paul both played together that you used to practice using that book? Was there one that you kind of always go back to? We used to play, I saw a standing there, a very ropey sort of version of it, but that was one of them and we used to do Norwegian wood and you know the ones that weren't too sort of complicated really and a lot of the early 60s ones so that they followed that sort of that sequence of you know a lot of those songs popular songs that were written in those days were like the root and then the relative minor and the fourth and the fifth you know that was that was a a very common sort of you know chord sequence so once you add that down and we used to do quite a bit of rock and roll as well you know like Chuck Berry and all them sort of things so yeah. But then the Beatles did that as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And this, I mean, this is such a young age to be gigging. So John, I mean, John Weller sounds like he was able to just hustle and get you spots. And we're talking like Shearwater Youth Club. You're paying to people your own age, but then working men's clubs and stuff, right? The British. Yeah, Legion. well, I think the first one we did was well, the, the actual first gig we ever did was at school one lunchtime. Just the two of us. We had this microphone that was sort of plugged in through the record player. <laughs> it was the record player had a, had a speaker in it, you know. Right. So obviously the word had gone round that we were doing this little gig in the music room at lunchtime. And we got in there. We were so nervous. I mean, really, really bricking it. And, you know, just looked down all the time. And then when we sort of looked up, you know, most of the audience was girls. We just thought, yeah, this is a good job, to, <laughs> to paraphrase John Lennon, you know. <laughs> this is the life for so, me. Uh, <laughs> and Nikki Weller talks about like playing the, the British Legion and I, um, and these kind of working men's clubs. As, you know, you're, you're not, they're not there to see you, I guess, is the point I'm getting at, right? You're, no, you're, you're entertainment. And, you know, basically you make a noise 
for the first sort of hour and a half. Then they have the bingo, and then you know the last bit they want to have a dance when they're all lashed up. You know, so I think we got away with quite a lot because we were so young. So people just copped on to the fact that we were quite young. And the interesting thing also was that we weren't current then we were playing retro music then i mean i when i do pub gigs now you know I, I still joke with people that most of the songs i play you know i wasn't even born when they were written I, most of my stuff is retro you know it we always sort of went back so it sort of worked for us because we weren't trying to push the current scene we were playing old beatles songs and old rock and roll songs which with the sort of older people that were in the clubs it went down well you know i saw paul talking on absolute radio recently and it was about they talked about like every decade when they were asking him like which bit he enjoyed most he talks about those those very early days um and he talks about the residency at michael's club we were doing fridays there and then for a while we were doing fridays and sundays there Friday night was quite a late one. We used to kick off about 10 o'clock because it was a late sort of drinking place, you know. The upstairs was the sort of nightclub. Well, I say sort of night. It was like a late drinking bar, if you like. And they had a, a sort of gambling den out the back. <laughs> and then um, and downstairs, they had a disco. So, again, we were immediately sort of removed from the people our own age group because all the people upstairs were much older, you know. It was great up there because John, a lot of John's mates used to come up there, you know, and it was like a, you know, it was just like a little family sort of meeting every Friday up there, you know. A bit of money in your pocket as well. Oh, I think we used to get about 15 quid for a Friday night between the three of us, so it was five each, which, you know, in those days was all right. The laugh was we weren't even old enough to be in there, let alone to go and play there. I think we started that when we were 15. You know, so we weren't really old enough to be in there, let alone, you know, actually providing the entertainment. <laughs> you talked about cutting your teeth and you talked about like putting in the hours, you know, to, to learn the, the instrument, the guitar and all that. But th- that was really, I mean, from such a young age to be getting into that and, and having regular gigs is, is really important, isn't it? I think getting out and play, because the big problem is you're never ready. And you also, I mean, even now at my age, you never get as good as you want to be. You know, there's always a hill in distance you're trying to climb, you know. I think Paul would probably say the same. So the amount of people at that sort of age sort of say, oh, no, we're not ready yet, we're not ready yet. Well, you're never ready, and you've got to get out there. And and it's like now, if I'm, do- if I'm doing a gig now, I still get nervous, but if I'm, it's not about not making mistakes. It's about recovering from your mistakes because everyone makes, you know, obviously people like the London Philharmonic, they don't make mistakes, you know, because that's, that's what they're paid to do. But when you're a, what would I call it, an instinctive sort of musician, you, you, you do make mistakes and it's about recovering from that and live playing. It's the difference is what I call bedroom players. You know, if you go to an open mic and you watch a bedroom player, if he makes a mistake, he stops and starts again. And then everyone knows he's made a mistake. Whereas if you if you just crack on, people don't notice the mistake. As long as you keep going, you know, that's the secret. Yeah. The show goes on. <laughs> <laughs> what was the gig 1974, November 1974? Didn't you play the local prison? Coldenly Prison, um, which was a high security joint. I don't know how we got it. Um, <laughs> it was in the local paper. And, um, yeah, and, and, you know, and it went down really well. I mean, you know, I think actually Bruce Foxon was with us then. And, uh, and we only did a short set, probably, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour. You know, actually getting in and out of the place was, you know, was quite a challenge. But all the cons, for, we were great, you know, so. That's brilliant, though, again, at such a young age. Yeah, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was um, all good experience. And you talked about Bruce. So how did that come about, with Bruce joining the band and you expanding to a four-piece? There's a, there's a wonderful picture that's on the internet and in your book of you all with these kind of white kipper ties and these black Burton suits and stuff. But when did, when did yeah. Bruce get involved? I think we were already into the white ties at that point. I think that was might have been one of the main reasons he, he sort of swerved it on the first go. Um, he um, he came along when we were looking for a rhythm guitarist because Paul was going to move over on the bass because our three piece lineup was two guitars and drums. We didn't have a bass player, and the plan was that Paul was going to move over the bass and Bruce was going to do the rhythm guitar sort of thing. And uh, and he, he was you know he was a good singer as well, so we liked that. That was another another voice in the band, you know. And he came along, not so much an audition, but he did a sort of, you know, came along to one of our rehearsals and did a few songs and that. And we thought, yeah, he's good. He's, he, he'll definitely do the job. But he didn't really fancy it. He thought it was all a bit pony for him. He was with a band that was a bit more progressive, you know, and um, but they weren't doing any gigs, whereas we were out gigging a couple of nights a week, every weekend, you know. So he disappeared for a while and then he came back on the scene. In the meantime, we tried a few other people that never worked out. 
then he came back on the scene and then we did our first rehearsal as a four piece round at the Workingman's Club and the sound just just was gone you know without Paul playing rhythm it just the whole band didn't sound right you know and also Paul realised that he was finding it difficult to sing and play bass at the same time so it all got to a bit of a sort of standoffy thing and um and John said, well, look, why don't Paul go back on the guitar and Bruce, you have a go at the bass, you know, and Bruce didn't seem too keen, but he, he gave it a go. And although he was playing quite rudimentary sort of bass, it was just what it needed because Paul's being back on the guitar. He had a very strong rhythmic uh, feel to his playing, you know. Mm. He didn't use sort of light strings and that, you know, when he played it, he played it, you know, and that, and that carries on to when you watch him in the jam, you know, you watch them live, man, they were a powerful band, you know. And that all stemmed from the early days when he was he was bashing out the rhythm because we didn't have a bass. A lot of his guitar playing was down the bottom end, sort of filling the sound up. And then when you see him sort of later on, he he developed that style with the Pete Townsend thing. He was never, if you listen to any of the jam sort of stuff, it was he was never like a lead guitar hero. You know, it was always a, a whole thing. Great, I mean, he, you know, he really developed a terrific sound. It's really early on that you you started recording and you you had like recording sessions and stuff. And I'm guessing again, this is maybe John helping to drive it forward and push things, but you're in a, you're in a recording studio, like tail end of 1973, like Eden's studios, yeah. weren't you? Yeah. We, um, we started writing songs straight away. As soon as we started playing, we started writing songs and, um, and yeah, I think, um, our first recording was at Kingston. Yeah. It was a song called blueberry rock and taking my love. And taking my love in, I think was the B side on in the city. Yeah, and, and on they the pumped album. it all up, you know. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. we, when we first did it, it was like a more like a sort of swingy rock and roll sort of song. We based it on a Beatles tune called One After Nine Oh Nine, which was like a country rock sort of tune. It was on the Let It Be album, and interestingly enough, that was a tune that Lennon and McCartney had written when they were teenagers, and they fished it out and started playing it again, you know? And obviously what happened was, after I went, you know, that they carried on playing it, but they just punked it up, you know, so it all speeded up. You can't imagine as a kid of like 13, 14, of deciding this is the route you want to go in and loving it so much that you're starting to think about it as a career and gigging and, um, and you know, and recording, getting into a recording studio and actually recording like an acetate of your... Yeah, of your it was expensive smash. as well, you know? I mean, in those days, recording studios... You, you really had to be on the ball because you couldn't waste a minute once you got in there. But we were rehearsing all the time, playing all the time anyway. And John, but John um, obviously saw something in you enough. It was a two-way thing, really. You know, John was so encouraging and that encouraged us to try harder, you know. It was a symbiotic sort of thing, definitely, I don't think. Because John used to drive us about a lot. That was the thing as well, which was a terrible asshole in them days. You know, if you like, want to play electric guitar and, and carry in an amp, around you couldn't do it on the bus you know it was like you had to have someone to deliver you and pick you up you know yeah. so he was like our mentor you know and many years later interestingly enough john i was chatting to john one day and he'd said that when he was when he was a youngster he'd been a boxer and he had a chance of you know like a biggish sort of fight down in brighton because he came originally from chichester sort of way and he had a, quite a big uh, a big bout coming up. And he went out on the lash the night before. And when he turned up, his trainer just looked at him and said, you're wasting your time, son. And he said it sort of stayed with him that don't mess it up. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing was, one of the first gigs we did at Shearwater Youth Club, back in the day, I don't know if you remember the Faces and the Stones, they always used to have a, like a bar on the stage with paper cups and bottles right. of wine and bottles of Jack Daniels. And we thought that was magic. So we had the same thing at our first gig at Shearwater Youth Club. We had like bottles of Blue Nun and Newcastle Brown and God knows what parked in the corner, right? <laughs> With the view of drinking it while we we're on. But then something happened and the PA didn't work and someone was messed and so we didn't go on. And we just drank a lot and ended up slaughtered. <laughs> and then someone had sorted out all the sound gear and then we had to go on. We were off our tits. <laughs> and uh, John did his nut, you know, because it was obviously a reflection of what had happened to him, you know, because he said, you know, I'm putting a lot of time into this. Said, if you boys ain't going to take it seriously, then I'm out, you know. He was always very adult with us. That's something that Paul, I think, has carried forward in his life. Paul is a very adult person and always has been. He's not a pussy in terms of, well, everyone knows he's not a pussy, but he's not a pussy in terms of looking at, you know, to your sort of responsibilities and, and hard work. I mean, obviously, I've done some recording with him in the last few years, you know, and 
they don't mess about there when you're at the barn. It's very, very intense when they're making a record, you know. If you don't cut it, you just won't be in it. And that's that. And able to be pretty, which I think he has to be as well, pretty ruthless in terms of changing things up, whether it's a lineup of, you know, and, and working with new people and pushing it forward continuously. That seems to have always yeah, been there as well, yeah? I don't think it's so much ruthlessness. I just think he's not a sentimental person. So if a lineup needs to be changed or something has to be changed, then he won't cling to it through sentimentality. And that goes back to what I'm saying about him being an adult. He makes decisions, you know, and then, boom, they're acted on, you know. He doesn't differ, you know. And that's obviously what makes him what he is, you know. He, he is a decision maker. But like I say, you know, it is they work very, very hard and they work lots of hours. You wouldn't believe you know, the first hour of the day can be a little bit sort of, you know, not driven. You know, everyone's sort of having a cup of tea and getting chat and listening to playbacks of something they've done before. And then, you know, once the day gets underway, sort of late morning, middayish, and they can work through till 12, 1, 2, 3 o'clock, you know, just work solid, you know, 12, 15 hours. The levels of concentration that Paul brings to it are just astounding. You know, I, I get to the point sometimes, you know, come 11 o'clock, my ears are gone. I can't hear any difference between what we've done and what, you know, I just, I'm, I've lost it. And his powers of concentration are just immense, you know. And that, again, is all part of that sort of, you don't get to be where he is. If you haven't got that quality, it's not just a gift. He works very, very hard at it, which yes. I don't think a lot of people think, you know. Yeah, but yeah, I think, I think you're it all right. just falls yeah. in your lap, you know. Yeah. It falls, these songs fall from the stars and other skies, yeah. and it's, um, or it's yeah. just a natural gift, isn't it? It's that 10,000 yeah, hours. He, to he is immensely gifted. Don't get, don't get me wrong. It, you know, he has a gift and he's very aware that he, that he's got a gift, but he does work very hard with the gift, which is the two sides of the coin, you know. It'd be interesting to understand how your journey with the jam finished because Paul discovers mod and he gets a Vesper and things, but that seems from my understanding of watching the two of you talk, it that you kind of started not drifting apart as a friends necessarily, but your tastes changed. We did start drifting apart as friends, I'm, okay. you know, unfortunately. But like I always say to people, when we when we got together we were 13 and then when we parted company in terms of the band and that we were 17 and that's a quarter of your life at that age it's only four years mm. but it's a quarter of your life and it's probably the quarter of your life that changes more than any any other period of your life in that four years and we we both changed and it was just a recognition that you know paul wanted to do the mod and the the jam suits the thing that they were famous for was the sort of turning point because it was like well either you're going to go and get one of these and be part of this new sort of image that we want to create or that paul wants to create and when are you going to go for your fitting sort of thing and i thought no i'm i'm not doing it you know i'm sort of i mean we were a bit sort of the style side of it was always more paul's input than mine i'm not i'm not really a you know any kind of fashionista but um but the style of the the way it was going, you know, I wanted to try and keep it in the in the Beatles groove, you know. And interestingly enough, I've always said that I thought that actually the Style Council that was probably much more the kind of band that I thought the Jam was going to become, much more varied and you know, a lot, lot more mellow bits in it, you know. I could have fitted into Style Council; that, that would have been all right. And then and then it was it was just time for us to part, you know. And I know they, I mean, they did try quite a few subsequent fourth members, you know. And Paul even phoned me one day and said, look, you know, EMI had been sniffing around when I was in the band. They've sort of come back and said that they might be interested, but they want it as a four-piece. Would you fancy giving it another shot? So I didn't just turn down the jam once, I turned down the jam twice. (laughs) Did you ever look at them? I mean, as that success happened, they get Simon Polydor and they become huge. Did you ever look at it and regret that decision? Oh, inevitably, yeah. No, I've always, you know, I've always said to people, look, I didn't sit around wringing my hands and crying in my beer about it, but yeah, you look at something like that and you think, well, maybe I should have knuckled down and just joined in with it. But then I think, well, being the individual that I am and Paul being the individual he is, I probably wouldn't have lasted that long anyway. So it was probably better that I, I went when I did, you know? Mm-hmm. I think so anyway. The testament to it is that since we sort of, we re-established our friendship back in the 90s, you know, we've been really good buddies since then. And, and we make music together, which is really cool. I think if there'd been loads of bitterness and acrimony and money dramas and whatever, then we probably would never have spoken again, you know? So in a lot of ways, you know, it was all for the best. Did you continue with music at that point yourself? I kept writing and I was out doing gigs on my own and I was doing a lot of sort of cabaret type gigs to earn some dough. And I just lost my way, really, is the truth of it. I underestimated 
the benefit of being in a band and having other people to knock ideas around with, you know. It just it all just dried up really. And I got to twenty and I had a tape of some new songs that I'd written and stuff. Interestingly enough, I did actually sit in the car one day in a park and listening to them. And I thought, this is going nowhere, Steve. You know, you're gonna have to you're gonna break your own art if you carry on like this. So um especially when you look at the mountain that you had to climb to compete with them. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. it was um so I sort of wandered off and uh, did other things and you know, I've I've always played. I've always played for, for fun and that, you know. I mean and then back in the nineties I sort of started, you know, just I got asked a couple of people said, Oh, do you want to be in this band? You fancy coming and doing something? And I thought, well, if I'm gonna be in a band again, I've got to really go back to basics, you know, go back to the thing that really turned me on when I first started playing. Obviously the rock and roll thing was quite a big thing with me, but I really started going in depth into the where that came from, which was the blues side mm-hmm. side of things, you know. And I was really listening to a lot of blues and I was playing in blues bands and stuff. And it was really good for me because it got me going from a very basic back to beginning type of thing and i've really enjoyed sort of i didn't make my first record till i was 50 you know but i've really enjoyed the process i don't sell any no one's that interested especially the big problem is of course that anyone that comes to my music from paul's direction is expecting a cut price sort of weller or something and it's Mm -hmm. totally different to that and most of them just think oh that's you know not for me so that doesn't do me any favors really but i've got a few you know few sort of people that tell me that they like a few of my songs so I'll keep doing them, you know. That reconnection um, that you mentioned in the 90s, was that, how did that come about? Was that you reaching out, was Paul reaching out, or just uh, pumping into each other in the street? No, um, I was um, I was approached by um, the guy that wrote the book, did the Boys About Town fanzine, a guy okay. called Barry Neald, and he contacted me and said, would I do an interview for him? And I said, yeah, I, you know, I think this would have been about 92. And then he contacted me and said, oh, Paolo Hewitt's got wind of it, and he wants to uh, know if you can come down and, if he can come down and film it because he's making a film. And I said, yeah, I've got, you know, got nothing to lose. So that, that was, um, I, I, I was in that highlights and hang up. Oh yeah. Paolo did. Oh, Have you yeah. seen that? Yeah. I mean, not for years. I had it on VHS. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. No, I've got it on VHS <laughs> and I need to get a digital copy yeah. of it because it is, I think it's one of the best Weller films because John's on it as well, you know, and there's some classic bits, you know, when he was, you know, he was talking about something or other and he said, ah, he said, that's crap. No, it's not crap. Yeah, it's crap. You know, and it was just it was just quintessential, John. When you came back with the album Thankful, it was interesting because it was this was you back at it as a solo artist and, and your own songs and stuff. But that was around the same time that Paul was again reshaping the band and Steve White had left and Twenty Two Dreams was the album that he came up with. Um and you're yeah. on it. One Bright Star Well you, you, you slide on. guitar, aren't you? Well, it was on a song called One Bright Star. Yeah. He phoned me one day and said, have you got a Spanish guitar? Could you bring it over? Like a nylon strong. I said, yeah. So, uh, and he'd never asked me to play on anything before. So I thought, oh, well, this is, you know, nice. And I think he was, uh, I can't remember the name of the producer that he was with at the time. Simon, was it Simon Diamond? And they pretty much got this thing done. And Simon had put a load of sampled mandolins on it. And Paul wanted me to do some Spanish guitar. And I come, up, I come up with some nice little... I mean, I hadn't had any prep. I didn't know what I was going to be doing. So I just literally sat in the studio and played along with it a couple of times and they chopped a few bits that they liked, you know, and there was a few little... But you can't really hear it. That You really, really got to be listening to hear it, you know, in the background. And I think, you know, it was more a sort of just a, a little nod to me to sort of involve me which which is nice the lovely thing is um a couple of years later you're i mean you're playing live again which is fabulous and you're inspired to make music again which is really cool but there's this wake up the nation album and wake up woking which was the local hospice gig in the leisure center and you supported That's Paul, cool. which is brilliant I, a couple of weeks before i went to the gigs at the royal albert hall and bruce came on stage with Paul because... Oh, that's right. Yeah, I was yeah. at that one. I mean, the noise was just incredible. But it then happened again at this Woking Hospice gig, which was brilliant. But yeah. you, you supported Everyone got Paul. excited that it was all going to get going. Yeah, again. yeah, the jam of that. Yeah. Um, but you supported Paul on that. But then you also played with him, didn't you, on that on that Woking gig? Yeah, again, he, did, he hadn't warned me. He just said... Because um, I'd played a bit of slide on... Um, Find the torch, burn the plans. Didn't they play it backwards or something like that? Yeah, they they, they sort of used it and you know did a bit of Beatles backwards on it and uh, whatever. So on the night he said to me, "Oh, you're going to come on and and do find the torch, burn the plans." And I thought, oh, I mean, I did, I'd done it with an open tune and I couldn't remember what I played. I didn't have a clue. I hadn't listened to the record to sort of get an idea of rehearsing anything. So and I thought to myself. 
you know what, Steve, you can make a real prick of yourself here. So I got on the stage and just like, you know, kept smiling and whatever. I just turned my guitar completely down and just stood there pretending. I borrowed a slide off of uh, Roger, <laughs> the uh, the roadie, and just stood there doing this, you know, and it, there was nothing coming out. The sound man must have been going potty, but no one knew. <laughs> That's what Noel Gallagher did on one, with Paul on stage, I was told. Did he? Yeah, yeah, just turned it right oh, down, really? turned I didn't it off. Know yeah. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the other funny thing was that. Paul got me over, uh, there's a bit at the end where there's a bit of vocal, Paul got me over to sort of sing it with him on the same mic, you know, with his arm around me. As I went towards him, one of the like the little cut guitar strings on my guitar caught his shirt and it sort of like dragged, and there's a picture of it. It looks like I'm sort of stabbing him with my guitar. It's really weird. Ripping his prize Ben Sherman or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think it was, it was like, um, it was more like a granddad shirt, you know, but... Um, <laughs> No, it was uh, it was a good night. Though. It was good fun. Brilliant, and must have been nice to see everybody back. You know, in, in like the local town because I know you're in Cambly now. Is that right? Down the road. From yeah, Cambly, I've lived yeah. in Cambly for for a long time now. Yeah, I'm originally from London, and we moved down to Byfleet when I first met Paul in 1971. So I, I didn't live there before right. I was 13, and then we moved again. Oh, I don't know, 19. 19- 73 my mum likes to move around a lot so we moved back up to london at one point but i kept you know kept the thing going with paul used to spend quite a lot of time down at his place you know so a lot of people think i'm a woking boy but i'm not i didn't actually go to school there or anything you know right oh interesting um, i wanted to talk about saturn's pattern which was another paul album and there's a lovely credit for you i've now finally got my hands on the vinyl and uh, there's a lovely bit with you in there steve brooks uh, my oldest china for playing such great slide guitar it says on and this is yeah. these, these city streets so how did that come about and can you remember the session um i didn't play slide on city streets i, I just played guitar on that one and in the car i played slide on that on the City Streets one, I'd been down at the barn and he'd run it past me and I'd played a little bit on the demo and he quite liked what I did. And then I think when they came to cut it, he couldn't quite get that feel that I'd sort of got for him. So he gave me a ring, typical sort of Paul at the time. He's a, he's a lot better now. But he, found, he said, oh, you're free this afternoon. I said, well, I can be. He said, oh, he said, you know what you did on that City Streets? He said, can you come down and do it again? So I said, yeah, of course, you know. And then I think, I don't think it was the same session, but he said about doing some slide on in the car. Again, I didn't know the track. I was just sort of making out as I went along, really. And I didn't have a guitar set up for slide because you have to, they have to be set up different, you know. Um, so I messed about setting up one of his guitars to play slide on it. I could see him and Stan were getting a bit bored waiting for me to fiddle around with his guitar, you know. But the thing is, unless you get the action high on a slide guitar, it rattles a lot. So you can't get that real aggressive sort of sound you know so and it, but then and what i was doing was i was playing in the control room you know and him and stan were sort of saying oh yeah we like that bit or we, we don't like that bit or do that again or whatever which quite often a way that they work there that was the first thing that i could sort of say that i actually made a, a contribution on which was great there's a b-side actually from from around that time which was um track called open road as well which uh, you're on which was you steve craddock on both of you on acoustic guitars andy croft on bass and ben cordelia and i want to talk about ben because and um, if we skip forward to hoodoo zoo which is your 2017 solo album paul's on your album for the first time i think i think i'm right in yeah yeah, yeah? No, um in, in guitar and harmonica and Tell me about Ben Gordelia, because he's, he's on the new album as well, which we'll talk about in a second. But what does he bring to the party? What does he offer? Ben is a lovely, lovely fellow for a start. And it, it's so much easier when you're working with people that are amenable, you know, because you can say stuff to him, you know. And he's one of these people that, you know, you can give him a couple of demos and say, well, this is what we're going with, you know, and he might come in with an idea. But if you ask him to change it, like a lot of musicians really get uppity when you try and do that and uh, he is just so adaptable you know he'll try anything and again his work ethic i mean he just you know normally we would we, try and get him in for a day to do you know to overdub sort of percussion and drums on what we'd already done he just you know it just goes on and on and on you know if, if you keep asking him he'll keep doing it you know He's just a diamond, you know, and very, very talented. I mean, he comes up with some terrific ideas. I, I don't know if you've heard on Hoodoo Zoo, there's a track, it's an instrumental called On a Freak. It started off as a sort of little John Lee Hooker riff. And what I tried to do was introduce like an African sort of theme to it to make the link between John Lee Hooker and like the Ali Farkatura kind of vibe, you know. And so I'd done it as a guitar solo. 
with just a foot stomp, just doing a, a, a straight foot beat and a drone on the on the bottom E string and doing this thing as a as a sort of African thing. And I'm not joking, Ben came in and just transformed it. I mean the stuff he's got on there, you know, we had um cicada sort of sound at the beginning and at the end, you know, and the whole idea was it was like a, a troop of African spice traders or something like that, you know, going along this dusty road and you can hear them coming in on the... There's a bit you can actually see the witch doctor dancing around, you know, with what Ben's doing. It's magic. It's really, you know, I was really chuffed with that. That's one of the best bits of thing I've done. So if you get a chance... Have a listen on Spotify to Honor Freak. It's on Hoodoo Zoo. He's really great to work with. So this was recording at Black Barnes. You've got yeah. Wellers HQ, the studio. Um, Charles Reese, the engineer, Paul's engineer, yeah. is working with you as well. And, and Paul plays on a couple of tracks. So I think I'm right in saying it's guitar on a track called, and I'm going to mess the pronunciation of this up probably, but Amala, is that right? I don't know the proper word <laughs> way of pronouncing it. <laughs> but yeah, that's how you Amala do it. Amala is, is <laughs> okay. near enough, yeah. yeah. And then there's a track called Looking at the Monkeys, which is great, which Paul's playing harmonica on as well. Is that right? Yeah, that was really that was really strange because we'd sort of pretty much done that one and Paul was in the studio that day. And I was about to say to him, There's in the instrumental bit, if you could do a bit of harmonica, it might sound really good. And as I was about to say, he was out in the studio hunting through his harmonicas. You know, it was real like you know, oh, spooky wow. sort of yeah. thing. Like he'd read my mind. You know? <laughs> they use this expression down the barn, serve in the song. They don't want heroes. They don't want heroic master musicians. They want people that serve the song, you know, and, it, and that is how the, the ethos of it is. You go in to serve that song, you know. Anyone who went down there and started overplaying, they just wouldn't use it. It's just not their thing, you know. So that was one thing that we, we sort of got into this idea that um, if he could find something that, he felt comfortable with just, you know, just do it like on Amala, he, he plays the guitar solo, you know, and he just sort of sat and he, he also did a couple of little bits of cymbal and, and he put some other chords on it, sort of laid some chords on the top of it, some major sevens where I was playing minors, he laid some major sevens over the top, you know. So I was pretty pleased with that one. There's a guy called The General. I don't know if you know The General, Steve Trigg, who um, is from the Stone Foundation. But he talks about Paul being like an artist who's kind of just adding brushstrokes, these little touches. Yeah, yeah. Up and build these layers, which was a lovely analogy. Um, there's a couple of albums which were really important, I think, for the past few years. There's um, Jawbone and True Meanings, which Paul's back playing really acoustically, Hannah Peel's orchestration and stuff. And there's yeah. the track Bottle that you're on and you play on Mayfly. But there's also, you played live with Paul Christmas 2018, the Union Chapel. And I'm hoping he gave you notice of this because you seem to know the song. So he must have done that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the thing about it is, like I say, I actually said to him years ago, that, you know, it was lovely to come and do stuff with him, but I'm, you know, I need a bit of prep time. Something Muddy Waters once said that there, there are some people, some musicians that are just born and they're the kind of guys that can play any instrument. You can sit them down and they'll just play anything. And there are other guys that are made out of nails and wood. And he said, there's a place in any band for both kind of musicians, he said, because the nails and wood guys try really hard. And that's the kind of musician I am, really. So I said to him, if you can, if you want me to do something, I'd love to do it, but just give me a bit of prep time, you know, so that I can come down with something meaningful. You know, he did start doing that quite some years ago. Yeah, so with the jawbone thing, he had an idea of what he wanted me to play, and I came up with something else. And unfortunately, I didn't use it in the film, the story of my life. It was on the record, but they didn't actually use it in the uh, in the film. Yeah, it was a good little tune. It was only quite, I think it's quite a short tune, because obviously it was made for a film, for a section of the film, which they, you know, they didn't actually use in the end. But have you seen that film? Yeah, yeah, I thought it was a good movie. Yeah, yeah I enjoyed it. I yeah. thought it was bloody great. When yeah. it first started, because we went up to the premiere up at the Film Institute and that, and I, when it first started, I thought, oh, another boxing film, you know? And it's more of a film about addiction. Yeah, yeah. It's and there's lots of times, isn't it? It's heartbreaking. Yeah, Johnny, Johnny Harris thought was yeah. fantastic in it, you know, yeah. and he wrote it as well, you know, yeah. so... Yeah, there's that whole um, bit where he's in the in the I think it's the job centre or the dole office trying to get his money and stuff, and you're just like, man, this is heartbreaking. So, yeah. So, yeah, and there was another bit where he's he's um, down by the river and he's got a half bottle of vodka. He's on the verge of having to sort of knock it on the head, the boozing and that, you know. And you're thinking that he's going to do the Sylvester Stallone moment. He's going to get the bottle and symbolically throw it in the river, and that's going to be the end of it. But he didn't. He did what an alcoholic would do. He hid it so that he could go back and find it. And I thought that was genius. I just thought, yeah, that's addiction. 
You know, that that's what an, an addict does, you know. I, I thought it was a brilliant movie. Well, I'll tell you what, you have the best opening line of a gig ever, Union Chapel. <laughs> Can you remember what you said when you opened the concert? Oh, yeah. But, yeah, again, I sort of rehearsed it. I sort of thought, oh, we're playing in a church, you know, because everyone thinks he's, you know, the Messiah. I thought, I can't resist that Monty Python line, you know. <laughs> he's not the I Messiah. Can't, I couldn't yeah. do the Terry Jones voice, you know. <laughs> but the trouble was I delivered, you know, I said, don't get confused by the surroundings, you know. He's not the Messiah. And everyone started laughing. So when I actually delivered the punchline, he's a very naughty boy. It sort of got drowned out a bit by the... It's very amazing. And the nice thing is, because obviously we go back quite a long way, and we're very comfortable with, with each other. And part of our always from day one, you know, we've always taken the mickey out of each other mercilessly. So I'm probably one of the only people that can get away with dissing him on stage you know what I mean just for, yeah. just for a laugh because you know he's we go back that far you know it was so, great watching uh, the About the Young Idea documentary the TV documentary where the two of you I don't know where you were but you were sat on the sofa talking and, and it's you know clear that friendship was there and, and that love of each other but yeah you, you were able to take the piss out of each other that I've not seen anybody really do before it's brilliant yeah it is just it's just part of our friendship you know yeah. it's always been the case you know I don't know I think it's a Woking thing actually because everyone I know from Woking is a massive piss taker I don't know why something in the water I think and you know what it's like you know that thing of that um men you know like women wouldn't do it to each other and I'm not being sexist here but men it's like with men the more diabolical things you can say to your mate it's a proof of how close you are to it. You know what I mean? That's what yeah, men yeah. do. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The more offensive it can be, you're right. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> so tell me about the new LP, Tread Gently, which is out 3rd of September. Uh, was that recorded at Black Barn as well? Yeah, we um, started that in December last year and I got the sort of basic tracks down and then Ben came down and played on quite a few of them. I think there's a dozen tracks and Ben probably played on seven of them, I think. And again, you know, just some terrific interpretations of the ideas that I had, you know. He just does a great job, you know. There's one track called A Walk in London, and he came up with some ideas to just put a little bit of piano on it, you know. And it just sparkles, you know, it's brilliant. Is there a theme to this one? Are the songs connected anyway? I think only in as much as, because of the lockdown and I wasn't gigging, I'm sort of used to the fact that I've, tend to gig in noise in a noisy environment so my singing style tends to be quite balls out and because i was mostly singing at home quietly i thought i'm going to try and use that on the new record so i'm singing much more lower register and sort of and just singing very quietly and it was sort of a bit of a revelation for me that it worked because it, it's a different quality in your voice you know and there is a song on the album called Tread Gently Through This Earth, which is just a solo one with a, you know, just guitar and vocal. And it's just about, I think a lot of the songs are about um, just being kinder to the environment and to each other and to try and reduce our footprint, both spiritually and environmentally and, you know, just treading gently through the earth, you know. And I think there's a few of the songs that sort of correlate with that with that idea. There's one song on there called Meantime, which I was inspired by um, a book I read about two kids in the Second World War. One was a Jewish kid and one was a, a Polish Catholic kid. And they were best buddies, you know, about 10. And when they were inevitably separated, they, they had a photo of the pair of them. And they tore it in half and kept each other's half so that it would be like a little talisman so that one day they'd put the picture back together. And inevitably, because the the Jewish kid never did make it, so they never did put the picture back together. And the the song is about, I think probably a lot of people might think it's about COVID or something, but it was written back when COVID was a Baskoff, you know. Those were the days. It's about people that are separated by conflict. And I think that's a really sort of universal thing. So, again, it's about that sort of like the gentler side of life. I think also it's an age thing. You know, when you get older, you you tend to sort of reflect on certainly some of the things you've done yourself, which you, you may not be proud of, and just the state of the world, you know, and it's in a mess, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you. Are, I mean, I've got really young kids, but you kind of go, Christ, what have I brought them into, you know? I know, yeah, I would be, I think, you know, I, I would be terrified now of bringing kids up in this world you know it's just so many issues big issues you know it is terrifying so that is the sort of if there is a theme to the album it is just about treading gently in your life you know paul was around is paul on the album paul came down i'm just trying to think we had we did the first session which was a three-day session getting the tracks down and then ben came down and i think there was a bit of an overlap paul was down for for a couple of days sort of listening to it and oh i've got an idea for that one and i've got an idea for that they're only small parts but there's one song on there called in november 
which is probably my favourite track on there. It's quite a jazzy one. I had this little idea for a little solo in the middle, and I didn't know what it was called. I, I described it as the little little keyboardy thing that you breathe into. And they said, oh, that's a melodica. I said, yeah, that's it. I said, have you, have you got one of them? So they said, yeah, we've got two. He said, you can have a <laughs> choice. So. Anyway, he got one out, and he started playing, and he, and he just worked out this little solo in the middle of this song. I'm not joking. It, it was, it's just magnificent. It really is good. So uh, I'm chuffed with that. He played um, guitar on another one. He played Farfisa organ on another track, which I said to him at the time, I said, I'd love to put strings on this. It's a sort of sad song about um, a guy sort of walking along a lonely beach. It's called Beach Coma. A guy of a certain age that's got a lot of regrets in his life, you know, and it's a sad song. And all the things that he finds there are sort of metaphors for what's going on in his life. And I said to Paul, I'd really love to have strings on this, but I just can't afford it to get it organised. And uh, he came up with this little line, some some little lines on the Farfisa. And I said to him after, I said, that just makes it even sadder. It's really good, you know, really. I was chuffed with that, what he did on that one. And another one, he just did some Hammond organ, and it is just literally the main chord, you know, but it just comes up and then it's great. Again, it goes back to that sort of serving the song. He doesn't, he just comes up with little ideas and just, you know, just gently, gentle brushstrokes, you know. Oh, brilliant. I can't wait to hear yeah. this. It sounds fabulous, I have to say, mate. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pleased with it. So, yeah. But and I'm pleased got... with all of them. And <laughs> no one else ever seems to cop on for them. But... Have you got the actual thing in your hand yet? Have you had your copies through? Or... Yeah, I've actually got some now, yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's... There you are. Look at that. Yeah, and it comes out on September the 3rd, so it'll be on Spotify and all that, iTunes and whatever. Oh, so. Yeah. I, I mean, think I've got, I'm up to about 23 listeners on, on Spotify now, so I'm going to be international <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> um, I mean, you've been down to Black Barn quite a bit recently, and, and, when, and I'd love to talk about how you view Paul's career now and what he's achieved. This is one of the questions actually that came through on Twitter. Sean Wilson, when you look at what Paul has achieved, what do you think? And I'll, I'll throw in the fact that you're on, on Sunset, you're on Fat Pop, and this is, I mean, actually, you talk about being able to play in the Style Council, you kind of have, in a way. On Sunset, walk in, Mick Talbot's on the Hammond. No, Did you yeah. play together? or were you there separately and nah, there? No, no, unfortunately not, no. Oh, I've, but, I've met Mick a couple of times but and he's a, he's a very gentle soul, you know, he's, he's very quietly spoken and uh, seems like a really nice guy but I don't, I wouldn't say I know him. It's fabulous to be able to say that you played on a number one album, you know, I mean, for someone because I'm, I just, I don't really, I don't consider myself, I'm not a professional musician, you know, I'm just, I call myself a lucky amateur. So to be on something like that, it's great. On the sunset, the track walk in, and then on failed on on fat pot, which was which was actually on the Japanese version of on the sunset, but also on the um, on obviously on the, the UK version of fat pot recently. But you were yeah. slide guitar on that, and that was written after a row with huge row with Hannah, which is what Paul said in Mojo magazine. Did he tell you that? Oh, did, right. you know, did you know? I didn't that? know that. No, <laughs> yeah. I did actually play on Plowman as well. I played some oh. slide on Plowman, but I didn't I didn't get credit on that. I, sometimes they just don't. You know, you just get forgotten about sort of thing plowman was on um on sunset it's quite a good it's quite a good tune as well i like it as a tune you get the impression because they're layering everything up maybe they're forgetting where they're getting all the bits from yeah a few final questions for you and um, did you go to the jam exhibition oh somerset house yeah 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 i did actually yeah yeah how was that looking back at some of the because there's some proper like early early stuff that you know you were involved in in that wasn't there yeah i mean it, it was great yeah i mean it was um because we went on sort of on the opening day it was quite busy. Paul and I talked about going back up there together on a quiet day, you know, just sneaking around there on our own. But we never got around to it. Um, but no, it was, it was great. It was well done. I thought it was it was really good. Yeah. And obviously, the the film was a sort of spin off from that whole thing because Nikki and then Davis and whatever sort of organised it. I have two final questions for you. This has been so brilliant, Steve. I thank you so much for your time, man. Um, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Style Council, or Solo. What one would it be? Well, I have to say that out of all his career, my favourite stuff is the solo stuff. Again, I'm not really a much of a favourites kind of person because it's all a bit apples and oranges, you know. But I, there is one particular song um, which always breaks my heart when I listen to it. It's Time Passes from Stanley Rowe. Oh, yeah. I think it's a, a, just a beautiful sentiment, you know. And like I say, he's not a sentimental person, but um, I think it was about the fracture of his marriage with DC Lee, you know, I'm guessing, I don't know for sure. And um, I just think some of the imagery that he comes up, you know, it's just brilliant. He, he he does it for me on a lot a lot of his stuff, you know. And I don't like all his stuff, you know. Uh, I've often said, you know, a lot of the avant garde stuff sort of goes over my head a bit. But when he nails it, I just, you know, I just think he's so soulful and um, he's, he's a genius, you know, that's it really. 
national treasure. <laughs> <laughs> and makes a good cup of tea from what I hear as well, which is always nice. Well, I wouldn't <laughs> go that far. <laughs> Final question for you then. This, the purpose of this podcast is to talk to amazing people like yourself. So thank you so much. But it's also for me to get that interview with Paul that I never managed in my radio career. If it happens, what do you think I should talk to him about? Is there anything that I should ask him? The point about it is that, you know, I don't, I shouldn't think there's too many questions that he hasn't already been asked, you know. I would say, you know, sometimes I think if you try and dig too deep into him, I don't think he likes being psychoanalyzed. So when people try, I've often noticed in interviews when people try and dig under under his skin and find out, you know, what makes him tick. I think he tends to sort of um, back off from that, you know. So whilst I don't think you need to be, I think it's you've got to realize with Paul, it's all about the music. So keep it if you keep it music focused and demonstrate the fact that you are, have listened in depth to whatever it is that you want to talk about, then you'll get a lot more respect from him for that. I think that's probably the, the main event because that is his only thing. You know, he doesn't... I mean, I saw him on Jonathan Ross a little while ago and, you know, and he was chatting and being friendly and smiling and whatever. And I thought, blimey, that's not like the old Paul, you know. You know, I think it really is all just about the music, you know. He says what he wants to say through the music. So that's the main event, really. I mentioned Stone Foundation earlier on. I should have said about this. So you're you're and you're going to be supporting Stone Foundation on their well, the dates, right? yeah. Hopefully, well, I'm doing the sort of the southern gigs. So if you look on their website, you'll see that you know most of the gigs in the south. I'm doing about a dozen, uh, just as a little warm up spot, which was really nice to be asked to do by Neil or the two Neils. We're just sort of hoping that things don't change and it all goes ahead because we were supposed to be doing it last year. Yeah, so obviously we'll have copies of the new album and no t-shirts yet. I don't think, but you never know. This time next year, Rodney. <laughs> um, so I'm doing Bristol, Exeter, Brighton, Southampton, Margate. South End, Norwich, Colchester, Islington Assembly Hall. Steve, this has been so lovely. Thank you so much for your time, man. I really, really appreciate it. Not at all. Nice to speak to you, Dan, and good luck with the podcast. My thanks once again to Steve Brooks, another amazing guest. You can find links to his new album, Tread Gently, in my show notes for this podcast or directly on Amazon. And check out loads of links that I put there in the show notes for various different releases, YouTube videos, and stuff like that too. Now, next week, we dive into the albums of The Jam with author Sean Hand, the man behind the book, Pop Art Poems, The Music of The Jam. Make sure that you subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts, leave a review. It really does help us to find new listeners. And please do share this episode of the podcast on your social media channels. If you like it, you can even buy me a coffee. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.